chatting with everybody on the YouTube page that Instead I have. Uh, paying attention to worship. Thank yeah. You. Oh. oh. <laughs> By the way, happy Mother's Day to everyone. Uh, my mom is watching from Rock Hill, South Carolina. Happy Mother's Day, Mom. <clears throat> um, all right, so I'm not as put together as I normally I'm always very well put together, as you know, but <clears throat> today I just got this microphone on. Uh, <clears throat> By the way, this live stream thing is working pretty well. Did you know, I got a summary from YouTube. In April, we had 35,000 hours watched on our YouTube channel. 35, I don't know if that's good or bad, but it seems like a lot to me. I've never had 35,000 of anything. So 35,000 hours watched is pretty good. You guys are keeping up between the live stream, Grace Life TV on Fridays, and the sermons that we put up there um, for the archive. So uh, we're continuing with our series on the Gospel of Mark, and uh, fittingly, this week's sermon is titled, Wash Your Hands. Yay. Right? So ever since the pandemic became big news, hygiene has garnered more attention than ever. <clears throat> Don't touch that box. Don't open that door. Don't shake hands. And now suddenly, everyone is an expert on hand washing. Remember, you know, what is it? Sing happy birthday while you're washing. Something, is that right? Something like that. Use antibacterial soap, which, by the way, is a myth. You can use any type of soap. I don't know if you knew that or not. And air dry, of course, is the best. Why would you sanitize? Then you know, just let them air dry. That's better, right? And for those, though, with those, for those of us with OCD, none of this is really new. I was way ahead of all of you on this for decades. I have Purell bottles in my backpack. I have them in my desk in my office, I have them in my desk at home, I have them in my bag, I have them in my truck, everywhere. I have Purell. I have for years. But there are also things that we used to do that we thought were clean and sanitary. For example, now that we have been exposed to what is really dirty in this idea of viruses, how many of you still follow, what is it, the, the three-second rule? Like you drop something on the ground and you pick it up in three seconds, you can eat it? How many of you really still do that? I know I stopped. You, Al, you do? That's because, <laughs> not me. Three-second rule, out the window. If it hits the floor, I don't even want to clean it up. Just leave it there. I don't want to touch it. How many of you, since this pandemic, have tried to clean off like a spoon with your shirt? If a spoon drops or it goes in a dirty place, I'm done with it for six months. I'm not touching it. I'm through. The fact is, the truth about germs and viruses has exposed that many of our previous thoughts about hygiene were really just vain attempts meant to make us feel better. You know, cleaning a spoon with your shirt does not make it clean, people. Just making sure you know. Have you seen your shirts? So let's read the passage today, and you'll see why it's called Wash Your Hands. <clears throat> Mark 7, verses 1 through 13, a little bit longer passage. Now, when the Pharisees had gathered... To him, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing of the cups and the pots and copper vessels and dining couches and the Pharisees, doesn't this sound familiar? <laughs> now what we're going? And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, 
Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but they eat with defiled hands? Why aren't you using Purell? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandments of God and hold to the traditions of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your mother and your father, and whoever reviles his father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things like this you do. It's a complicated passage, but we're going to try to break it down for you. So we look at the history of the passage first. We're going to talk about worshiping tradition. So there's this thing that I've shared with you guys before in other sermons called Fences Around the Torah. And before you can appreciate this passage and this story of what they're actually saying, you need to have a better understanding of the culture regarding ceremonial traditions. <clears throat> now, over centuries, Jewish scholars had written volumes, thousands of volumes, centered around how to keep the law. And I won't bore you with all the different names of the different books and the scrolls, but there were literally thousands of different types of books and scrolls all centered around ceremonial rituals to keep the law. Instead, let me teach you again. Some of you have heard this before. I will teach you real quickly the story about how one kosher rule is a great microcosm for all these thousands of writings, and it's the rule of not mixing milk and meat together. Let me explain the evolution and the origin. In the Old Testament, there was a command, don't boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Okay, fine. We won't boil a goat in the milk from its own mother. But they were so frightened that they said, you know, we don't want to even come close to breaking the law. So instead of just saying don't boil a goat in its mother's milk, we'll say don't ever cook any goat in any milk. Okay, fine. But if someone does accidentally cook a goat in some sort of milk, well, that's just one step away from cooking a goat in its mother's milk. We don't want anything close to that. So why don't we just say, don't ever cook a goat in any type of milk whatsoever. As a matter of fact, don't even have milk near the goat. But if someone does have milk near the goat, it could accidentally spill into the pot where the goat's cooking. And now you've cooked a goat in its mother's milk, or in milk, and that's just one step away from cooking a goat in its mother's milk, so we have to protect it even more. Tell you what, let's just make a rule, shall we? Don't ever have any type of meat, goat, cow, oxen, whatever, never have any type of meat anywhere near any type of dairy. And that became the kosher rule we know today, don't mix milk and meat. But it started from just one specific command for some health reasons, don't boil a young goat in its mother's milk. But the experts in the law said, we have to make sure we build fences around the Torah. We don't want to ever come close, so we're going to make a rule here. Don't ever have milk and meat together. If we can keep them that far away, they'll never even come close to the law. But nowhere in Scripture does it say, don't mix milk and meat. 
It doesn't say that anywhere. But that law has now been treated like it was with scriptural authority. Traditions like these had been collected in many forms into one big collection called the Mishnah, which, by the way, is Hebrew. The word means to repeat. It's a written record of all these different type of rituals and ceremonies and rules and traditions and laws and council decisions and individual opinions from thousands of priests and scribes. It is a religious ceremonial OCD nightmare of books and parchments and speeches organized by headings and chapters and verses That's what we're dealing with here. This is the burden that these religious scholars have heaped upon other people. And at this time, in this particular time in history, Israel's under the rule of Rome, observance of ceremonial traditions and practices are at an all-time high. They are, in fact, the absolute pride and joy of all of Judaism. And it had become, this book, this Mishnah, had become a go-to source for spirituality. You can understand why these things were so precious right now, right? As Rome had taken over, I think the Jews would be extremely motivated to preserve their identity. And the only way they can do that is the area where the, the Roman Empire is still giving them authority. Okay, temple, you can still have authority spiritually or religious. We don't care about religion. So you can see how they'd be extra motivated to keep their identity by following all these rules. The problem is these rules became their source for spirituality, and they were more precious than the scriptures. Look at this. This is a quote from the the Talmud in Jerusalem, which is a commentary on the the Mishnah. The words of the scribes, that's the Mishnah, get this, here's what they wrote, are more lovely than the words of the law. It is a greater crime to transgress the words of the school of the Rabbi Hillel, in other words, don't mix milk and meat, than the words of the scripture. It's worse for you to mix milk and meat than to boil a young goat in its mother's milk, is basically what they're saying. My son, attend to the words of the scribes more than the words of the law. Here's what they're saying. The law is okay, but you need to really pay attention to us more. If you follow us, the law will never, ever ever be a problem. So we are more important. Incidentally, this is the background that the Apostle Paul came from before he was a child of God. He was an expert on these things. He knew the law, the Mishnah, all the ceremonies. He was so good at it. He knew more than anyone. He would have been one of these experts from Jerusalem. Which brings me to my next point. The eyes of Jerusalem are watching And Mark makes note of these appearance, right, of not just scribes, but some very powerful individuals sent from Jerusalem, and they have a job, which is they're here to watch Jesus and his disciples very closely. These experts had incredible, impeccable temple credentials. From the best Hebrew theology schools, they were the cream of the crop, ceremonially speaking. They were likely asked to come by the local rabbis in Galilee to help challenge Jesus to blunt his influence and try to catch him and surpass him and maybe look, make him look like a fool on a philosophical, intellectual, or legal level. And this begins a year-long, intentional, 
strategic effort to stop Jesus that will ultimately end with them consentencing him to death and crucifixion on the cross. They have one goal. They're there to catch Jesus in a compromised situation and then discredit him, ending his dangerous movement. And if anyone is capable of trapping Jesus, certainly it would be these men. Using their unrivaled expertise and ceremonialism and religious tradition, these are the guys for the job. And I can just imagine, <clears throat> here they are, Jesus and his disciples are doing their thing. Right now they're in the market on this particular story, and these experts are in the background with their, hand, you know, their arms crossed in their little priestly garb, and they're watching. Did you just see what I saw? They're eating a pita bread without washing their hands. Make a note of that, shall you? Thank you very much. Another one just, did you see that? Oh, and he washed his hands, but it wasn't the right way. He just ran them under some water to get dirt off. That's not a, make a note of that, would you? And they're in the back kind of making these notes and watching. They see these ceremonial violations. And they decide at this particular point, the area that they can attack Jesus the most is on this idea of clean hands. They have found something. <clears throat> they found disciples in the marketplace violating ceremonial hand-washing rituals, particularly before eating in a marketplace. Now, it's not what you think. Well, of course you'd want to wash your hands in a first-century marketplace, right? It's filthy. But their concern has nothing to do with hygiene or fear of some virus. They don't have a clue about microbiology. They don't know what germs are. Their issue is not one of sanitation, but a violation of one of the, and the hand washing was one of their most precious outward ceremonial traditions. Hand washing. It was the one anybody and everybody could do. Again, it wasn't for sanitation. It was really more for this. It was more, this ceremonial hand washing was more of a racist sort of public statement about the filthiness of other people. I mean, a market is full of unclean people. There are certain ethnic groups like Samaritans. You don't want to touch them or touch anything that's touched one of them. And other Gentiles, you don't want to touch them. It is almost as dark and disgusting as when we had separated fountains for black people and white people. That's, that's how this really is. And so the ceremonial hand washing was Jews saying, we are just a little bit better than you people. And we will do this ceremonially because our God wants us clean of things like you. Or maybe, perhaps, it was other Jews that were there who had actually touched something unclean. That was also something they needed to be separated from. Maybe they touched a dead body. Or maybe some unclean animal or a carcass of an unclean animal. Maybe a pig. Or maybe a snake. See, the ceremonial hand-washing was not about germs. It was all about displaying righteousness for others who are dirty and sinful. Displaying your purity for all to see. And the hand-washing wasn't done in secret. It was done very publicly with very sophisticated step-by-step -step process that everybody would be able to see you do it. And everybody would know if you were ceremonially hand-washing yourself, they would know what it meant. It's an attempt outwardly 
to appease Jehovah, and they were passionate about it. If you'll allow me, one of my favorite phrases on fire for Jesus, which is not really one of my favorite, they were on fire for Jehovah and hand-washing. The problem is like milk and meat, there's nothing in the Bible, in the law, about this level of ceremonial hand-washing. It was all made up. So that's the history. Look at the spiritual. What about God or Jesus? What is he doing? Why and how does he do it? I've titled this section Vain Worship. I'm going to give you a lesson in this word called Corbin. So to challenge them, they confront Jesus. Hey, why are your disciples not washing your hands before you eat, especially in a marketplace? What is your problem? I thought you were a good rabbi. You're letting your people do this. It's, it's, it's terrible. So to challenge them, Jesus goes to the basic of all the commandments, to honor your mother and your father. Something you would do, you would respect them when you were young and they were providing for you. <clears throat> and then it would turn to support for them in their old age when they could no longer provide for themselves. This idea was foundational to Jewish society. And failure to take care of your parents was so serious, it brought the threat of being stoned. Not doing so, not providing for your parents, was one of the most disgusting things as a Jew that you could ever do. But while the rabbis insisted that others follow laws like this and all those ridiculous ceremonies very closely, they had a special exemption for themselves, and Jesus points it out. He says, you should give money to your mother and father and help them when they need it, but instead you yell, Corbin. Here's what Corbin means. A sacrifice or offering made to God in fulfillment of a vow. A sacrifice or offering to God in fulfillment of a vow. See, the rabbinical system began to develop this system of immunity. It's like a loophole to excuse themselves from the law in the name of, well, we're serving God, so we don't have to do that. And he exposes how they use this loophole system of Corbin to exempt themselves from what would, for ordinary people, be a financial burden of taking care of your parents when they're older. <clears throat> Declaring Corbin, if you were a, a rabbi or a scribe, meant that you could ceremonially, publicly pledge a gift to your parents. I, rabbi so-and-so, or scribe so-and-so, publicly say, this gift of money is to my parents to help them, but I am also able to pledge it publicly, but then I get to keep it because it's dedicated to God. Under the guise of a life of service to Jehovah, they could keep the cash and then use it for whatever they see fit. But they still get all the public benefit of you know, providing for their and honoring their mom and dad. Dad, mom, listen, I, I know you're hurting, but I just can't give you any money. I would love to, but it's all Corbin. All devoted to God. I want to give this to you. I really do. But I just can't. It's being used for my service to God in the synagogue, in the temple. And that's much more important, right? It's a great perk. You appear righteous. You appear holy, you publicly honor mom and dad, but you get to keep the money. It's like saying to your mortgage company, I declare this is my mortgage payment, but I'm keeping it because I'm a pastor. 
I get good credit rating, get to keep my house, and the money. I'm going to try that. That's a really good idea. So Corbin had come this corrupt system, this loophole, for people in religious leadership to pretty much get away with anything they want and get around any law they want. And Jesus exposes, while they're trying to say, <clears throat> you know, you're not following these religious ceremonies, the hand-washing, he exposes their abuse and how their ridiculous ceremonial rules and traditions had long strayed away from the Scripture. And he says, you've gotten these ridiculous systems in place. You've come so far afield from the Scripture. Not only that, he exposes their lack of moral character by pointing out the fallacy of this system, Corbin. He says, you think that hand-washing is a law or a rule, but there's a greater rule, honor your mother and your father, and you don't even do that because the same way you came up with hand-washing, you came up with Corbin, which means you don't have to honor your mother and your father. You see how ridiculous you are, right? He says, not only that, everything you've done is all hypocrisy, and your service to God it's all vanity. As a matter of fact, he uses the word. He says it is vain. The Greek word, matain. And it's an accusative term, like you are vain. An unsuccessful search, a futile attempt, fruitless and folly. He says your hand washing is fruitless. Corbin is fruitless. The Mishnah is fruitless. It's all vanity. You're not worshiping God. As a matter of fact, you have gotten so far away from what Scripture teaches. What is the point? You've put a ton of time and effort into it. It's a great show. It looks impressive. It's the envy of every Jew. But your whole system is so ridiculous, you don't even know what God's Word says anymore about hand-washing or honoring your mother and your father. Everything you have invested your spiritual energy in is an absolute, abject, colossal failure. It is trivial and it is meaningless. It is a waste of your time and mine. It's nothing more than an outward show and totally misses the point of the heart behind the law of God's word. And it's a vicious indictment he makes. They believed that they were protecting Jehovah's law. He says, no, you have buried the law. And it is certainly a tough pill for them to swallow, right? Imagine what these experts are thinking as Jesus exposes all this. The feeling when Jesus drops this very public bomb of condemnation. They thought they had the goods on him. They had exposed the truth. And Jesus will have no choice but to concede and quit or be outcast. But that's not what happens. Now, they are left to take stock of who they really are and what they believe, even if they don't want to admit it publicly. They go away scratching their head, yikes, Corbin. I mean, it never occurred to them that in an attempt to trap Jesus, he would turn the tables, expose their hypocrisy and their abuse of Corbin and their ridiculous waste of time ceremonies like hand-washing. I mean, they treasure the Mishnah and all of its outward legalistic ceremony, it is precious to them. It is nostalgic. It means everything. Centuries of hypocritical, 
superficial, empty, useless, vain worship directed at the right God in the wrong way for the wrong reasons with the wrong result. Was ceremonial washing a sin? Well, no. But making it more important than the scripture certainly is. But outward tradition and ceremony made more important than people. Then the heart also is just as wrong. Outward tradition that becomes more important than God's word and his people misses the complete point. Which brings us to our personal section. What about us? What do we do and why and how do we do it? So this week we have our Sunday sermon preview back. So what I put up there on Twitter and Facebook. Are there things in your life you believe are devoted to serving God, but actually are devoted to serving yourself? I put the hashtag Corbin in there. Are there things in your life that you believe are fully devoted to serving Jehovah, but actually you're just doing that in the name of Jehovah and you're really just serving yourself? That's what the rabbis were doing. And our first reaction when we hear this story right, yeah, Jesus, you get them. Like we are superior to these stupid, silly Pharisees. But instead, what I want you to do is as Christians, put us in their shoes for just a moment. And I want to address what I think is something I would like to call evangelical Corbin. You like that term? You see, it's easy for us to see our sins in our sin. Like, we know adultery is wrong. Stealing is wrong. We can see that lying is wrong. It's easy to see our sin in our sin. But it's much harder for us to see our sins in our religion. Is it possible that there are things... The church, even Grace Life, have declared Corbin dedicated to God or devoted to the service of God that really aren't. Things we think are religious and righteous and ceremonial, but they really only serve our own interest and not Jehovah's. And I think that this 21st cent- the idea of this 21st century evangelical Corbin is a rationalization that helps us mask things nicely within the church. We use Corbin. Listen, I'll give you some examples. I think many of us use Corbin to push our political views. How could you vote for him or her and still follow Jesus? I mean, if you're really dedicated to God, you'll see things politically the same way that I do. The scripture is very, well, no, the scripture doesn't tell you who to vote for. But we do that, both sides. Oh, you know, liberal, conservative, libertarian, everybody is righteous in their politics. And we judge those who aren't like us. Then we use Corbin to get our church to spend their resources on things that we want, things that we need. We use pity, woe is me, I need help. We use guilt, if you don't do this, you're really not serving God the way you should. Or self-righteousness, well, I would do this with my money. Or I'm going to dedicate it to this thing or that thing because it's better than the other things. Corbin could be being a part of a church, if you will, until it stops meeting your needs. And then you find some self-righteous decision to leave. Well, they just don't do things right in this particular way or teach this particular thing. When in reality, it's because you're not getting what you particularly want. Here's a tricky one. Sometimes we have declared Corbin on our family when family 
becomes an excuse to minimize commitment to the kingdom. It's tricky because I know that we need to be wise with our family, and I'm not saying it couldn't be a priority. They should, but some people use Corbin on their family. Well, I would like to give more. Well, I'd like to be more involved, but hey, family, God, family, church. We use Corbin to preserve traditions, ceremonies that we love. Get this, it is true. There are some church traditions and ceremonies we love more than the time we spend in God's word or prayer. We see nothing wrong with missing a time in God's word, but we would never miss a particular thing that happens once a year. And if a church doesn't do it the way we like it, I remember I was in a church one year we decided not to do the candlelight service. All purgatory broke loose. (laughs) See, we use Corbin for anything that we have grown to love more than God's word, God's kingdom, or God's people, but we still want it to seem righteous. And that's where it comes down to desires and appearances. How do we know when Corbin has creeped in? Here's how, desires and appearances. For us, Corbin is what we do when we need to twist the truth just a little bit or maybe a lot to fulfill our own desires to keep up with appearances in front of others. Those are the two reasons we might declare Corbin. Desires and appearances. In other words, selfishness and self-righteousness. This is the key to diagnosing evangelical Corbin to see if it's infiltrated your relationship with God. When we use the church for selfishness, what can I get? Or self-righteousness, how good can I look? We are, in effect, declaring Corbin. But what's the answer? How do we cure Corbin? I'm going to talk about spirit and truth. Jesus makes mention in the passage that you have forgotten the heart. You're good at the rules, but you don't know the heart. Hebrews 10.16 says this, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. It's a requote of Jeremiah. I will take the law on their hearts and write them on their minds. So Jesus, what we understand here, is Jesus is the positive solution to exposing the two-sided problem of Corbin, selfishness and self-righteousness. And what Jesus does is he takes obedience away from being an outward matter, a display matter, a selfish matter, and he turns it into a spiritual matter, not a fake one, not Corbin obedience. And he does this supernaturally by melding our hearts with his truth through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Matter of fact, John 4, 24 says this, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him with laws and rules. No, that's not what it says. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Through spirit and truth, our hearts are set free from the trap of declaring Corbin. Our motivations become kingdom and love for one another instead of selfishness and self-righteousness, desires and appearance. Remember, we, for those of you that were able to watch the Grace Life TV live stream on Friday, we spoke with Brian Yost about how this pandemic is forcing churches to reevaluate important. 
And before the pandemic, it became clear to me, it's become clear to me, looking back, that a virus had infected the church in many areas, and it's called Corbin. Corbin 19. <laughs> right now, though, I think God is using COVID-19 to expose what we have declared Corbin for selfish outward reasons, for desires and appearances. And right now, listen, this is important, church. Listen carefully. We are facing very tough questions about traditions, about many of our sacred cows, how we've done things. And we have to ask these questions. Are there selfish and self-righteous agendas, priorities, decisions, or habits we have forced into our church by twisting truth just a little bit? Things that have become more important than the priorities of God's kingdom and our love for each other? This season of this pandemic has given the church what I believe is an incredible opportunity of very clear eyes and hearts to find and purge areas where Corbin has crept in. How we do that? By diligently inquiring of God's word as we do here together each Sunday. There's groups in our church doing it weekly in our own personal time with God, spirit and truth. And then, over the next few months, we're going to begin to have the courage and wisdom because of what's been happening to ask each other very tough questions. Have our church and, frankly, our personal budgets, schedules, weekly, daily, our priorities, our habits, family, church, have any of those been infected by the virus I call Corbin? Have we declared things righteous when they're really just selfish and self-righteous? Is it possible that because of Corbin, our worship is in vain? Are we worshiping our God in spirit and truth? Search your own hearts this week and ask God to reveal has selfishness and self-righteousness taken over? Am I more concerned with my desires and my appearance? Have I used church things and declared them Corbin for me things? This is a question over the next month or so we have an incredible opportunity to ask both individually and corporately. Heavenly Dad, this idea of Corbin kind of stuck up on us. <laughs> we really didn't even think about it. Of course what we were doing was good. Every bit of it. Maybe not. Maybe some of what we've been doing is for our own benefit, our own self, our own appearances, our own desires, maybe some of the things as a church that we've been doing were not about the kingdom, but about us. 
And so in that respect, I'm thankful for this season where we are able to reevaluate our priorities. And God, we ask that you would reveal to us if there are things in our life that we have unknowingly, because we are so deceptive in our own hearts, maybe we have unknowingly declared Corbin, and we've stolen them from you. And not in a sense of guilt, but in a sense of a love and desire for you and for one another, we say to you, God, whatever is Corbin, take it from us, redeem it, transform it, and maybe trust us with it once again. And we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, I'm very thankful that you guys have been able to join us each and every week through this online stream. Uh, there are things we're working on, plans we're making. I can't share all of them with you yet, but just know that we have some really good ideas we're working on to figure out ways to reopen and once together be again, once to once again be together again in worship. You'll be hearing more about those in the coming weeks. Just pray for us as a leadership that we'll have wisdom and discernment. Uh, we thank you for everything you're doing, uh, your service, your generosity. I've just been stunned by how generous our church has been, not just with their money. But with your time and your talents and your willingness, it's been pretty amazing. We love you and miss you, and we can't wait to see you again soon. We will be together again soon. I'll talk to you soon. Have a great week.